Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, August the 5th, 2008. Oh, my week has been just over, over, what is it? The club cup runneth over. I can't even talk straight. I've had a visit from my sons. My older son brought with him his um, wife and stepson. That would be my step-grandson. I don't like all that step stuff. I'm not going to do that step stuff. I I mean, it's just that I don't know this young man very well. He's 13. And um, his mom married my uh, oldest son five years ago. And uh, uh, her son gave her away. Yes, it was a lovely wedding. He marched his mom down the aisle, eight years old, in a suit. (laughs) Anyway, they live near Dallas, Texas. And I have seen very little of my grandson. And I'm just going to call him that because I like the sound of it. I don't care for the other. Uh, It's just that he has multiple grandparents at home. You know, um, two sets there, and I just don't want to be intrusive. Uh, but I'm sure that he knows that the guy can have any number of significant elders, you know. We all have our uses. <laughs> you know, maybe he'll want to hang out in Berkeley when he's a little older. You never can tell. I was so delighted to see him this week because he is much grown since his last visit. He's a big dude. And he has read Hamlet. Oh, he quotes it. I'm so happy. He also quotes Superman, which is cool. I mentioned that both my sons have gray hair now in their middle 40s. And he said that, no, no, he said they were silver haired. You remember Christopher Reeves as Clark Kent? Uh, I think he was correcting the editor of the newspaper something. The newspaper guy said, I suppose you send your wages to your gray-haired mother and he said uh no she's actually silver-haired he said these things penetrate penetrate the minds anyway my grandson quotes not just christopher reeve superman but the ghost of hamlet's father with some theatrical flair he admits that hamlet is the only one of shakespeare's plays he has read so I thought about it. Uh, there he is, 13 years old, and it's just seventh grade, so uh, I think it's asking a lot of him to tackle the bard. But before he goes home tonight, I'm going to give him uh, 
Tales from Shakespeare. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, it's not cheating. It's just a book written in 1800. That's halfway back to Shakespeare, back to the time of the Bard, uh, 400 years ago. So 200 years ago, some lovely people called Charles and Mary Lamb wrote a kind of prose fairy tales. Uh, they took 19 of Shakespeare's plays called it Tales from Shakespeare. And it's become a classic. Uh, I suppose it's a children's classic. I uh, I used it in college. Um, I think of it as a terrific introduction to Shakespeare, certainly suitable for uh, seventh graders. I mean, I remember several times... In college, let's see, I hadn't read Timon of, uh, Timon, Timon of Athens, and there was one other play I hadn't read, uh, and I could just read these charming fairy tales and get at least the plot, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, of course, it is not Shakespeare. Shakespeare is about language. It is about the words. But, this way, you know, you can read the story of Romeo and Juliet, and then you can dive into the poetry. Uh, I had a copy of Charles and Mary Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare when I was 13. Uh, I found them very romantic. They were a brother and sister, lived 200 years ago, and uh, they had a terrible history. Uh, uh, Mary Lamb had gone bananas, that is, she was mentally ill, and she had killed the parents, you see, and they said she could remain at home and live um, a quiet life if Charles would <laughs> stay with her, and so he stayed home and took care of his sister, his mad sister, and they did charming things like write these uh, tales from Shakespeare, these sweet little tales. Uh, I remember reading, the first one I read was the one from Midsummer Night's Dream, which uh, I performed in, in the eighth grade. Uh, it was um, probably the most, what do we call that, uh, the, the fluffiest of Shakespeare's plays, you know. It was all about costumes and magic, and I just loved it for that reason. Uh, I was at a girls' boarding school in Fallbrook, California, Central California, out in the avocado land. It was a ranch. It was horses. And there was out there a magic forest, believe it or not. Anyway, I had been sent to that school. Uh, my mother had died that year, and uh, I was there at the boarding school, so I can't really remember whether it was poetry and theater that became my solace because of that loss or because it was just my life's passion, but I know that it was in that year that I took to language and the theater. Uh, that's why I think of the age of 13 as a particularly magic age. It's when the great imprinting occurs, you know. Uh, anyway... The following summer, I was sent off to a dude ranch near Tucson. It was called the H. Cross. I remember I tried to use my uh, Shakespeare, my uh, my aesthetic 
sense to impress the only girl of my age who was there at the time. Uh, uh, I had to share a room with her. Uh, she was too busy having a crush on the cowboy who was in charge of our riding lessons. Uh, his name was Zack. Hmm, it's funny how I remember his name and nobody else's. Of course, at the time, I was much too disdainful to have crushes on cowboys or even on boys, men, you know. We wise folk, we uh, literary thoughtful people, we don't fall in love, at least not very easily. I've been reading this week uh, all about how Tavis Smiley... Hmm, now, here's a leap, folks. I'm making a gigantic leap from <laughs> from not falling in love when I was 13 to not falling in love when I'm 74. Uh, Tavis Smiley says that too many Americans have fallen in love with Barack Obama. And I, I just have to say that that is not true in my case. It is not true at all. But let's see what Obama says. Uh, it says something about uh, accountability. Where is it? Uh, accountability and falling in love. Uh, yes, he says. Uh, yes, just because, just because uh, we've fallen in love. It's no excuse to pass up the accountability he requires of this guy. Uh, Tavis Smiley, as most people know by now, is an entertainer, a pundit. Um, he says that his work is in service to his black community. And I guess that it's a mark of progress that a major TV personality <laughs> can resist Barack Obama, cannot fall in love. I think he's trying to go one better than Barack saying that uh, he's saying that a black president is a simplistic solution to our problems. Yes, indeed. I think I felt just the same way about Hillary. But that doesn't mean that I didn't want to see her in the White House. Anyway, I want to recommend to you today an article in the August 4th New Yorker because I think it's fun. Ah, it's all about Tavis Smiley, and it's called What He Knows for Sure. That's the title of one of his books, actually. It's in the political scene section. It's 4 August 2008, The New Yorker. It says, Tavis Smiley confronts the Obama candidacy. Now, Tavis Smiley is the guy who gives secular sermons on TV, and... Uh, the show that he was on, he had to leave because he got so much flack from uh, the Barack issue. Now, the guy, uh, the uh, boss on the show, he says that Barack Obama can't take the hate he's been getting regarding the Barack issue. And at that time, let's see, a while back, he asked his listeners to persuade Tavis Smiley to stay on the air. He said, I want you to call him, email him, text him, hug him, kiss him, get him in a corner and wrestle him. It didn't work. <laughs> anyway, let's see. I wanted to tell you a couple of things about this article. Those of you who are uh, adherents to KPFA, who've been around forever, remember Cheryl Flowers, 
she worked here. She did uh, Larry Bensky's show. Um, she did all his flat catching and work for him. She's a longtime producer for Tavis. And I got a kick out of this article because they, they show you how she handles Tavis Smiley, who is obviously a delightful egomaniac. Uh, <laughs> yes. He, um, he said on the air, for example, this president thing, it can't be all that, he said, especially if it means that black people and black suffering have to be rendered invisible. He did talk about the importance of hope, but added a qualifier. Even hope needs help. So after he signed off, he went next door to the control room to see Cheryl Flowers, his longtime producer. She played his commentary back to him. When he heard himself say, hope needs help, he leaned forward. That could have been taken as a tacit endorsement for Obama, he said. Shell Flowers maintains an air of fond skepticism. She said, well, she didn't think so. Yes. Later, he asked whether the commentary could be criticized for being, quote, too much Tavis. Cheryl paused. That's a possibility, she said. <laughs> anyway, uh, the article goes on to talk about the 70 employees that the Smiley Group has. Um, this guy is a, a, a big shot. He's interesting. It's funny, one of his staff members says that he no longer swears. Years ago, an engineer secretly recorded a profane rant, burned it into CDs, and distributed them among <laughs> Smiley's colleagues. Okay, nowadays what he does is he, he uses the word golly. He modifies it by, elong by elongating the first syllable and stressing the second one. Gives it the same general shape as an extended goddamn, that is golly. Another one of his favorite words is negro. He sometimes uses it to express disdain, as when he told an audience, Optimistic Negroes scare me. <laughs> On that note, I would like to ask my engineer, Veronica, are you in there? <laughs> yes, I'm definitely in here. <laughs> yeah, are you in there? Did you hear that? Do you hear what he said? He said, Optimistic Negroes scare me. Now, Oh. I, yeah, I, I don't know. Do you think that the people who have fallen in love with Barack Obama are uh, optimistic? What, what What is it he's saying? Well, I don't know if I would say they're particularly optimistic, but certainly you have to think of the contrast. We've been dealing with George Bush for <laughs> almost eight years. <laughs> exactly. So if you switch gears on that, almost anything is going to look optimistic. But why does it have to be a racial thing, I wonder? I and wonder, he, yeah. of all people, who has uh, made a lot of money having uh, espousing oftentimes the conservative point of view. I mean, yeah. What's I mean? Where is he coming from with that, Jennifer? What do you think? I, I God, I don't know. Uh, this guy is a real big question mark. He hangs out with Cornell West. What do you mean hangs out? Well, they they work together. Uh, it says here. Let's see. Um, they they go off on trips and do lectures together. Uh, apparently, let's see. His 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 best friend 
Now, Cornell West, as you know, is a Princeton professor and a public intellectual, we call yes, him. Yes, of course, a wonderful intellectual. Yes, actually, Cornell West is uh, probably... Let's say let's say he's the celebrity's celebrity when it comes to black academics. Yes. Okay. Anyway, um, during an episode that they taped shortly before Mother's Day, <laughs> Cornell West began by singing a snippet of the Intruders' 1973 hit, I'll Always Love My Mama. Ah. Smiley asked Cornell West, whom he calls Doc. He asked about the bond between black men and their mothers. Cornell West answered, We are such a hated and despised people that unconditional love has tremendous weight and gravitas. I guess I swallow it. I don't know. Yes, I guess I do. Uh, I've always been, I guess, a little envious or jealous of uh, the love that black mothers seem to get. I... I don't know whether I imagine it or not. Someone said the other day that Irish mothers uh, were (laughs) just, what is it, just as profound as black mothers. I said, I don't know. I don't think anything beats a black mother. I had several myself. Well, do you think it's real? Is that what you're saying? Are you questioning the authenticity? Do you think it's real? (laughs) Yeah, Sam Shepard keeps saying we're not authentic, you know. Alex Solzhenitsyn last night, yeah, I was trying to listen to all the old bits about him, you know. He was talking about all this stuff about, uh, you know, telling the truth. I don't know what's the truth. It's the truth for each one of us, I guess. Uh, Yes, I think, I think, uh, my impression is that there is something special about black mother's love. Is that going too far to well say. no because i'm a black mother i of think course. there's definitely something special about my love sometimes, i do you know what sometimes i question it myself jennifer so Bell, yeah bell hooks has all those books about it you know and she seems to make some distinctions i i don't know how we can distinguish you know love is love but uh what if you remember there's a book uh oh angela's ashes the the last irish book in which the mother is portrayed, the Irish mother is portrayed as unbelievably cruel. And I have seen that affect too, where I don't know, it's one of the ways in which love, um, tormented love, uh, I, I don't know what that anger is towards the child, but. It's a projection. Oppressed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, projection. And I believe it's not about oppression per se, it's about this person is representing you. Yeah, You know, and if they aren't handling themselves well, if they aren't representing, then it reflects upon you. And that turns into rage. It's all about what you didn't do. You know, if the mother didn't, for instance, go to law school and she really is gearing up the son to go to law school, a daughter or daughter. Remember I said, oh, daughter. Then uh, if that doesn't happen, there's a sense of failure that turns into rage. That's what I believe. I think, I was thinking in Angela's ashes, she, you know, she can't feed them, for God's sake. So, you know, she punishes them. Uh, It's so hard to understand. Wouldn't you think she just tried to do the best? I was on the bus the other day, and there was a black mother and child, and there was a terrible fight going on. And one of the uh, uh, other people on the bus, I can't remember who, I think it was a man, said... uh, 
Yeah, yeah, you gotta teach her. It was a little tiny, little tiny toddler. So you gotta teach her to fight back. You know, fight back. And I said, for God's sakes, you know, what, what are you gonna do that for? So then they all yelled at me. And I thought, well, at least I managed to deflect. <laughs> I managed, you know, the kid, the kid was off the hook, you know. Yes. But it is the most difficult thing I, uh, what is it? I've wondered about this pathology my whole life, and you know, uh, which pathology? Well, the, let's call it the dysfunctional family pathology. You got yourself here, this wildly successful man, uh, Tavis Smiley, that everybody seems to find interesting, and he's kind of giving Barack Obama the uh, "you think you solved our problems, you haven't" number. This guy was raised in a family where his uh, stepfather didn't tell him that he was his stepfather till he was 12. Thought it was his father. And, oh, that's painful. Right. And the father uh, beat him once so badly that um, the police had to come and intervene and put him in foster care. And he remained there for half a year. And says here that mother periodically forced him to prune his schedule and focus more on the church. In response, he cut himself off from his mother throughout much of his high school career. Okay, he grew up poor in a Pentecostal household in white rural Indiana. Boy, oh boy, how the twig is bent, as we say, you know. You just look to sources. He was raised, it says, alongside nine siblings and cousins. Stern mother, tough Air Force officer father. Ay vey. Um, anyway... He says, he tells this interviewer that his life was changed by a stack of Motown LPs, but they were not. Uh, it was not music. It was the recordings of great speeches by Martin Luther King released on a Motown imprint called Black Forum Records. Okay. Yes, he is, what is it? He tried to pattern himself on Martin Luther King. Now, why do you suppose... He's so upset about Barack Obama being the press. Well, because I, it's clear to me from what you just described, he feels he had to fight his way uh, to where he is now. Mm-hmm. And, of course, by contrast, Barack is treated like a rock star. Mm-hmm. And he also most probably projects that he's had a pretty easy life because he was biracial, at least, well... Tavis isn't particularly dark complected, but Barack is definitely mm. lighter complected. So the, the color thing can enter into it also. Yeah, he looks more. He seems to be well. His privilege is odd. He says coming from Kenya to United States was like magic to come here, and then um, Tavis Smiley says that's naive, and he doesn't get it. And I don't know. I think maybe bringing the innocence of an what is I don't want to say outsider, but. Uh, he was, what is it, in Indonesia, in Hawaii. He saw the whole world, and maybe that's why he would make such a wonderful leader in the United States, because he gets the total picture, and he's not still, what do we, I used to call it the burnt child reflex. He's not still suffering from this terrible pain of having come of age here in the U.S. of A. Well, I'm not willing to say that he has not suffered pain, Jennifer. I was thinking about this after reading your wonderful essay, uh, Homage to James Baldwin. And I believe he may have suffered here being in the United States. I mean, he is a biracial 
light-complected African-American man. No doubt he was taunted at some point sure. by people uh, like Travis Ta- uh, Tap. Tra- Travis yeah. Smiley. I know, I keep saying Travis, too. Drive me crazy. We should got uh Well, you know, I think that he um, he had to get his strength, his authority from somewhere other than... Because mm-hmm. think about his childhood. You know, his mother was was not really around for a large part of his childhood. Mother and grandmother, though. Yeah, there were right. plenty of, of fabulous women around him. Well, yes, his grandmother, his mm-hmm. father was, his grandfather was there. His father took off when he was two years old. Is yeah. that what it is? But those wise elders. Yeah, you know. but still, what I'm saying is when you come to America, you have to deal with that stuff. It's interesting. What is it? Uh, Smiley says, it says he urged his listeners not to be taken in by the hysteria and the hype. That's kind of strong. And he said, went on to say, yeah, you can't short circuit the process of holding folk accountable just because you fall in love. I just, what is that? Uh, he's saying that we're getting carried away here. You know, and after that, he got, you know, all the emails and the, the backlash. Uh, uh, he says that he really suffered. Um, pain, anguish, disappointment, whatever the listeners really really went after him now maybe it is it is an emotional yes uh he says that he was disgusted by the idea that the senator senator obama transcends race ah. nobody asks white candidates to transcend their race he said uh he says voting for the guy who just happens to be black might be the easy way out Okay, transcending race. Well, so what did he think the first African-American presidential, mainstream presidential <laughs> candidate was going to have to go through? I'm wondering, I would like to ask him, mm-hmm. because obviously it wasn't going to be easy, and it's not easy. And it's okay for us to be in love. I feel like I'm in love with him. Sure. He's a wonderful guy. He really is. He presents he's well. Too good to be true. We, we're, well, I know. But we, we get to be disillusioned later on. Okay, yeah, it'll wonderful? come. Yes. <laughs> no, it says here, oh, Smiley says he doesn't know if, if um, the, the man's soul will survive the campaign. But as I keep saying, it's the duty of statesmen to lose their soul in service to the state. Of course they will be pulled to pieces, you know. This, Travis is too smart for his own good, as you know. Uh, I don't believe his soul has been exposed to us. I think no. he knows enough to keep that out of the way. No, he has serenity unbelievable. You know, it's like, uh, what is it, to Zen something or another. I don't know why he doesn't get flustered. But because he has authority. The kind of That's why I believe, Jennifer, he suffered at some point. Okay. We don't know about it yet. But okay. just as uh, James Baldwin suggested in his essay, uh, well, something that he wrote yeah. that suffering if you once you get through it work through the process not escape it it gives you authority in your life yeah. he looks to me like someone who has authority in his own life yeah. and i and i trust him because of that that's what uh, alex solzhenitsyn said yes uh only you know when everything has been taken away from you you're truly free anyway i i'm gonna jabber about alex solzhenitsyn on the thursday morning spot but i uh, let's see i wonder if i have time just to say Oh, check this article because it has a wonderful section I meant to read, didn't have time, about Obama calling into the show and talking to Travis and saying that he's a supporter of Smiley's agenda. That's wonderful. You know, and uh, let us see, it goes on and on in detail, and 
there's just so many things here. Uh, he called him up, straightened him out. <laughs> you, see how, anyway. you see how wonderful he is. Yeah. I just love Obama. It, it just get on the phone. Sounds like FDR. Well, I'll give him a call, you know. Anyway, um, a lot of people are also calling uh, Tavis Smiley, saying that he's throwing a temper tantrum. Somebody said, who died in May, Tavis King? <laughs> uh, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the gist of it is that, of course, most of us know that, um, you know, uh, all our problems will not be solved by putting a black man in the White House. But I think it might be a nice place to start. I think he needs an opportunity to, to get in there and do what he's going to do. Yeah. To he, mess up, you know. Yeah, he says, actually, uh, Smiley does say, if the brother wins, I'm going to be on the front line of the electric slide. I'm going to be there celebrating like everybody else. Okay, so what's his problem? I don't know, but I want to see him do the electric slide. I think so. Yes, we'll get it, get it on tape, and then we'll, we'll uh, show it around. Uh, anyway, uh, Smiley says, every word that I have ever uttered in... Uh, this sacred space, he means space on the media, is born of a deep and abiding love for black people. So it comes down to the same thing. Yes, indeed. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Goes in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadow.